starting a series called Love Does, and uh, I'm really excited about this series. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in <coughs> to the, um, the theme verses, if you will, uh, for the series, for where we're going uh, over the next uh, several weeks. And I just want you to, uh, we'll have some, some other things that have to do with the words love does, but um, I want to just dive into the actual text, okay? Um, just to give you the backstory, um, everything we're going to read over the next couple weeks is all from Jesus. It's all in the Jesus time frame in terms of when these things happen. And I want you to know uh, there were religious leaders, okay? They're Pharisees and Sadducees, and there was a couple other layers of religious leaders in play, but um, they were really bothered by Jesus. And I know it sounds really crazy that the, the people of God's religion were really upset by how much of a pain God was being to them. Okay, that's, that's the way to say it really a pain. And so they were, con because Jesus had the crowd, because Jesus at the height of his ministry had a following and had the influence that they felt like was being taken from them, they were constantly having little meetings to try to find ways and find environments and find situations and find questions that would trip Jesus up. Okay? So we're stepping in to one of those moments right now in Matthew 22, if you want to look in your Bible, it says, when the Pharisees has heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, again, this has uh, happened previously in the text, they met together again to question him. This is just picture the meeting. Oh, well, that was, that's a great question. Let's ask that question. Then Jesus stumps them. And then they come back and they're like, that was a stupid question. Why did you have that question? Let's find another question. And it says that one of them, though, was an expert in religious law. He wanted to trap him with this question. He said, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Just pause here. Just know that from their perspective, they had the, the Ten Commandments, Big Ten, I call them, okay? They had the Big Ten. They had the Levitical law of Moses as well, but they, they attached onto all sort of the Levitical law, the law, of the, the law of the elders, if you will, in terms of the law and prophets that they'd kind of pieced together. So just to let you know, there was about 614, as best we can see, in terms of all the things that they claimed were the law, okay? So they're asking Jesus to, to just sort of set him up for failure. Hey, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? Because if Jesus chooses one above anything else, then it just becomes an argument of why that one, why that one, why that one. And here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said, you know, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says to them as well, the second is equally important, meaning that they're, they're really on the same page, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on to say, the entire law, okay, they know what this means to them. The entire law and all of the demands, meaning everything that came from God and came from Moses and everything that you've pieced together as elders and leaders, all the law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. If you've been around Christendom and the church, you may have heard the, you know, this passage referred to as the great commandment. And it's called the great commandment, even though there's two things, uh, because Jesus put them equally beside one another. He said, uh, you know, there's, there's these two idealistic statements, uh, and they, they, you can't put one over the other, so we call it the great commandment, but it's those two things. To, to love God, and then he gives the qualifiers of what that looks like, and then to love others, and then he gives the qualifiers of what that looks like. And so, 
We're going to look at what love does over the next few weeks as a church. However, I want to start with a question that I really hope that you will just not only uh, just allow it to be a filter this morning as you listen to the message, but also that you would just ask this question a thousand times over the next few weeks. And it's a question I heard about five years ago from a pastor down in Atlanta named Andy Stanley. Um, This question was made, I think he made a comment at one of his Easter services and said the question, and now I'm telling you, it has just been one of those questions that comes back to me and comes back to me and comes back to me whenever I'm thinking about the love of God and the love He's called us to. And that is this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? Now, it's funny. We don't usually use the word require around the word love. Okay, require is, a, is one of those words we don't like anyway, right? Because require means obligated. Require, <laughs> require means <clears throat> accountable, right? That's what required means. And we don't think of love as that. We think of love as like free. You can't tell me who to love, you know, and it's, it's free and it's all, you know, I want to love who I want and when I want and with I want. And I wanna, it's all about feeling and passion and emotion, And that's the way we want to talk about love, especially when we talk about it with Jesus. But Jesus didn't seem to have a problem using the word love with a command, right? With a requirement, with a, not a suggestion if it works and if you feel good about it, but Jesus uses the word love as something that is required, as something that he is asking every single person to do. He didn't seem to have any problem with using that language. So I want us to ask the question, what does love really require of me. I mean, both ways, the the love that God gives us, because Jesus would later on uh, summarize all of this into one covenant where he said, I want you to love others the way I've loved you. So what does love require of me in terms of how God has loved me? But then at the same time, what does love require of me when it comes to how I love you? It's an interesting question. I really hope you struggle with it a little bit. Now, we named the series Love Does because I'm a huge fan of Bob Goff. Bob Goff is an author and speaker and lawyer, believe it or not. Uh, he's a lawyer and an author and speaker, and, and, and he, um, he wrote uh, two or three really incredible books. His new book is just now coming out, Walk in, uh, uh, Walk in Faith, Walk in Love. And he, uh, I want to give you the, just the Love Does book, in case you haven't read it. Um, the Love Does book is not a book we can teach through because Bob writes the way he speaks, which is just random stories, okay? Random stories and random examples of of ways in which love is expressed through our Christian uh, faith. But if I could give you a quote that kind of summarizes the book, it's this quote from Love Does. Love is never stationary. Love doesn't keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. Simply put, love does. Love is action. Love is is motivation. Love is fuel. Love is something that that moves you forward. It's not something that you think about and plan for and contemplate. Love does. It cares. It gives. It pours out. It leverages all that it has for the sake of others. That's what love does. And when we talk about love in terms of, especially when it comes to beyond what we usually use this term for, when we talk about love in terms of our church, um, we have two values. One is love, and the other is the word generosity, okay? And that's primarily because we believe generosity is love in action. And this is the bottom line for the next few weeks, just in case you ever want to know what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about, 
All right, let's all say it together so we can burn it into our, our psyche here. Ready? Let's repeat after me. Say it, say it with me, actually. Generosity is love in action. Okay? Generosity is love in action. We like the word generosity, but we usually only put it towards money, to those who have excess, to those who have abundance, right? And those all who have excess and who have abundance, we feel like they should be much more willing to share with all of us who don't have the excess and don't have the abundance, right? We use the word generous often for them in terms of funds, but generosity, really, and to be generous, really from its definition is just simply to give. It's the action of giving. And because of that, it oftentimes results in you giving more than what's expected or more than what's at the bare minimum. And that's really the root definition of generosity and to be generous. And so we say, really, generosity is this picture of love taking action. Love does. Comes from, starts with generosity, a spirit of generosity. Now, we as a church have a, a value. And again, I told you, we have seven values. And they're not something you need to memorize. And they're not in your program. And they're not listed on a wall somewhere. These are the things that, in terms of our church, are kind of the glue that holds things together. These are the values that we preach about. We remember preaching and our preachers preach. These are the, um, the values that we want felt in the midst of our church and known for our church. And one of them is generosity. And our little, little sentence to help you see this is because we've been given more than we deserve. Why generosity? Why, why, why would we start there in terms of a spirit of generosity? Because we have all been so richly blessed. We have all been given so much more than we deserve. And so, therefore, the action, the response, if you will, is generosity. And we believe generosity is love and action when it comes to this idea of, you know, God saying, this is the, this is the greatest commandment I can give you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as much as you love yourself. So what is required of us in terms of that love? Well, Jesus liked to use uh, illustrations, made-up stories, to teach oftentimes the complexity of God and bring it down into a, a simple way of seeing it, a simple way of understanding it. It wasn't to dumb him down. It was to take something complex, huge, and make it something that we could understand, make it something that we could see. And see we call them parables in terms of the, the, the Gospels. We call these parables. So G these aren't like stories that really happened and Jesus just changed the name for their you know, privacy or something like that. Like that's not what, These are just made-up stories. Like Jesus was just the, he was amazing at it, just making these stories up to give us examples. Okay, so understand, that's what he's doing here. These are the examples and the points he's trying to make to the people he's teaching at that time. And I want to read to you. This is in Matthew 25. I believe this parable really walks us through this sort of the answer to this question. What does love require of me? It says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and he entrusted his money. Someone called these the talents. He entrusted them to them while he was gone. And to one he gave five bags of silver, and to the other, two bags of silver to another, and then one bag of silver to the last, three servants, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. In terms of there was a reason he gave one five and one two and one one. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money, and he earned five more. 
The servant with two bags of silver also went to work, and he earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver, he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid the master's money. Okay, so very simple story premise, if you will, or the way the, 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 the context he's starting. He's saying, look, there's a master that's involved. He's entrusted and given out his things to his servants. And the servants are supposed to do something with them. And, 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 and we see very clearly early on, there's a contrast, right? There are two servants who get it. There are two, two servants who go one path. And there's a one servant who goes the other. And so that's just the simple way he wants people to see and frame this story. Then he goes on and says this, that after a long time, we don't know how long it was, but say, hey, after a long time, their master returned from his trip and he called them to give an account. Remember those words, required, accountable, obligated? Yeah. He, he says, I want that he was called them to give an account of how they had used his money, how they had used what he gave them. And the servant to whom he entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. That's let's party. That's what that means, right? Then the one with two had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's party. Now what we see here, and I want to make sure you see this, is that Whatever these guys did with whatever they were, whatever they were given to by the master, again, he's using money as the example. They immediately started to use it. They started to leverage it. And they started to go after more and received more. And I don't want anybody to ever trick you in terms of some sort of weird uh, theology, if you will, or doctrine in terms of Christianity, that wanting more or using all that God has given you to achieve more is ever a bad thing. Having more is not a problem. Now, we read in Scripture a lot about the motive. Your motive for wanting more might be the problem. The why behind your efforts might be the issue. But actually receiving more and getting more and attaining more and doing something to multiply your efforts and to multiply what God has given you is not a problem. Matter of fact, in here, it's praised. It's rewarded by the Master. So we need to remember that. I love the way uh, Bob Proctor put it. He's, he's a speaker and an author, and he wrote a couple books, Law of Attraction and a few other uh, business books. Uh, but he said it this way. He said, the law of prosperity is generosity. If you want more, give more. Real simple. Now, I know the book's longer than that, but I'm just letting you know. Like, it's, it's real simple, right? He, here's now, like, understand, he is not a Christian author. He's not a pastor. He's not saying this to try to get more people to tithe to his church. Everybody nod your head if you're with me, right? He is a, he's a, a, a secular business author, guru, speaker. He's, he just understands the principle that God has put in place. He just happens to understand the system that God created, which is, hey, there seems to be this system that those who truly experience prosperity in their whole lives seem to be the ones who understand generosity. 
the art of giving and the art of giving more. They seem to understand that because if you want more, you give more. So that, that's really the contrast that, that Jesus is painting with this story. And then he goes on to give the other example. He says, the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. There's a few other words and a couple different translations in here, but I want you to, I want you to just think of the word unfair, right? Unfair. An unfair boss, an unfair master. You're harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose it or lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. I guess he went and dug it up and brought it back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvested crops that I didn't plant and, you, and gathered crops that I didn't cultivate. He said, if you knew that, keep going, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Now, Jesus, again, he, he paints the contrast. He's, he's set up the one. Here's the two guys who get it. Here's what they did. Here's what happened, and here's how they were rewarded. Now we go to the other example of the guy who hid it in the ground. And when I see the response from the servant, and when I see the response of, of the master to him, I really, I see a few things rise up in this moment. So as I was praying through this and working through this passage, um, I just began to, to, to recognize some things that I see pretty frequently in our current, um, I will say our current culture that seems to be really narcissistic and really individualistic and really kind of ignorant of how blessed we really are. And I see this in our modern culture, and here's the four things that I noticed from the servant's response and from what the master calls out in the servants. And that's greed, apathy, selfishness, and fear. These four things I see in his response, in terms of what he think, thought was his versus what was God's, and his laziness and his selfishness and, his, and not thinking about anybody but himself and the fear by which he responds to the master. I see these four things. And I see these in our culture quite a bit. The spirit of greed makes us always feel like we never have enough of what is mine and what I deserve. The spirit of apathy tells us that we don't need to care or have compassion. That's not really our job to do something about that. The spirit of selfishness tells us that we have to take care of us first and foremost before we do anything else for someone else. And the spirit of fear will keep us from leveraging and risking and pouring it out to do for others because we feel like we might fail. And these four things, I believe, paralyze us. They keep us from doing not only what we've been called to do, but they keep us from doing anything that truly matters. Now, he tells, Jesus goes on to tell the master's further response in this parable. He says, then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. Now, I want you to notice 
Um, he pulls out of the story for a moment by saying something in the story, wanting everybody to sort of hear it. So he's giving the narrative. Okay, the master took the thing and gave it to the guy with 10. And then he says this, to those who use well what you've been given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. Again, blessed, enough, and plenty. They will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. He wanted to make sure they heard this. But it goes beyond money. It goes beyond the talent, so to speak, of the illustration of this parable. Those who use well what they've been given will always have more, will always have abundance. Those who do nothing, right? These are the, this is the contrast. Those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. And then he ends the parable, the story. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hold the verse up for a minute. Now, I'll be honest, most of the time when you hear preachers preach this, um, because they're usually pr- trying to preach about money and trying to get you to tithe, okay, um, they won't read this last passage, okay? They'll leave it out. Why? Because people seem to get stuck, uh, stuck on the fact that the master throws this man in hell, or at least the, the language that we read in Scripture about hell. We're going to talk about heaven and hell in a couple weeks, so come back for that. Anyway, um, yeah, he, he, most people get stuck in the fact that, good, like, how could a loving God possibly do that? And how, what in the world? And like, the story just went way off where you thought it was going to go, and uh, wasn't it punishment enough to take it away? I don't get stuck on that. You know what I get stuck on? Read those two words out loud. That's what I get stuck on. I get stuck on the fact that in the example we're given, there's a path that leads to well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with the things I've given you. And there's a path that leads to the master saying, you have been a useless servant. I just want you to think for a minute. I mean, there's nobody in this room that would ever want to hear someone that that you believe cares about you ever look at you and call you useless. You would never want that. No one wants to end their life and finish this whole race we call life. Nobody wants to end that race and be called or be referenced to as useless. And yet when I see these four things, these four kind of these spirit of responses in terms of uh, greed and apathy and selfishness and fear, when I think about what, the, what they do in us, what they do to us, they really are useless. They don't do any good for you individually, and they don't help anybody else. Like they're no good for you and they're no good for everybody else. And so there really is no better term for it than useless. The spirit of greed is useless. The spirit of apathy, useless. Of selfishness, useless. Of fear, useless. In terms of how God views this, in terms of how the master would see this in his servant. And so if I had to summarize, again, using the language we're using for this series, if I had to summarize the, uh, the parable, I'd say this. Love does. Greed, apathy, selfishness, and fear doesn't. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of gray area. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus is usually like that. 
okay? He doesn't, he doesn't leave a lot of gray area for us to play in, which is what we like. It's either good or it's bad. It's either this way or that. He seems to always tend to give us this idea that there is a path that leads to this and there is a path that leads to that. And the examples are these. And for me, I look at it and think, man, when you really understand how much God loves you, when you really understand the call that he's placed on your life, to pour that out, to give it away, to be generous, to wake up every morning with a spirit of generosity, to pour that back out to everyone else is love in action because love does. And yet if you are held back by greed or fear or apathy or selfishness, then you're going to be on the path that does nothing. Now listen to this carefully. It's, it's really hard to imagine that we can be as busy as we all are. We can have no margin like most of us don't have. We can feel like we're extraordinarily focused on certain things in our life. And we can be exhausted from all of our efforts. And there's the real possibility we will still end this life and God will look at us and say, you were absolutely useless to the kingdom of God. And that is tragic. Because we don't take time sometimes to think through what is holding us back? We might, we might even be able to answer intellectually, what does love require of me? But does that love turn into action? Is, that, is there a generous spirit that motivates and pushes that and fuels that to go out from you to others? No, because sometimes there is another spirit at work. And so, just to let you know, next week, I do plan on you know, sharing a little bit more about opportunities and ways and a little bit more practical ways in which that spirit of generosity that's in us, that's marked in us by God, can really be used and leveraged and grow the way he wants it to grow. But today, today I just want you to take a moment to do the hard work, okay? I want you to just take a moment to do the hard work of really being honest with God. This is not one of these moments where I want anybody to raise their hand, okay? I want you to be honest with God and do the work that's needed to be able to get from where you are to where he wants you to go. And I'm going to do that through just four questions. Four questions. If you're not giving, which servant are you? If you're not giving of your time, you're not giving of your money, you're not giving of your resources, you're not giving of your talents, you're not giving of, of, of the things that God has blessed and given you, which servant are you? If you never feel like you have enough or you feel consumed with what's mine versus what's everyone else's, if you hoard all that you've been given, if you're very stingy when it comes to letting go of anything in your life, and you always want more, and you always feel like you need more, and sadly, there's a part of you that feels like you're entitled to more, then it's very possible that there's a spirit of greed and live in you. It's very possible that there's a spirit of greed alive in you, and you need to confess that to God and ask him to break that in you.
Okay, confession to God is not brand new information to him, just to let you know, okay? He already knows. Confession to God is where you come to the place and you do the hard work of acknowledging what is true about you to him. And it's only when you do that, it's only when you confess that, that actually he can go in and do a work to break that in you. And I, I tell people sometimes when it comes to greed, you know, some of the, some, when it comes to money, if you feel like uh, um, greed has a hold of your purse strings, you know, I tell people all the time, just write a big check. Write a big check that hurts, right? And you don't have to write it here. I always tell people that. You do not have to write it here. Go give it to a friend. Give it to a family member. Give it to another uh, mission and vision that, that aligns with you. you. Write a big check that hurts and do it every single time you feel greed show back up in your heart. Some of you need to volunteer. You need to give away your time. Because you might be generous, so to speak, in some of the other areas of your life, but time is not one of them. You don't give time to family that needs it. You don't give time to friends that need it. And you certainly don't give time to anyone else in your community that might need you. Because you don't wake up every morning looking for ways to give away what you've been given. But if you confess that to God, I'm telling you, he can, he can birth a spirit of generosity in you. Second question, do you really care? Do you really care? And if you don't really care, then which servant are you? Like, which servant are you? If you hear about someone's suffering, but there's nothing in you that is motivated to respond. If people around you are less fortunate but that doesn't stir something inside of you emotionally. If you've never taken the opportunity to go on a, on, a, on a journey go experience or locally just go serve those who are, in essence, helpless in their situation. If someone close to you has a real need and there's nothing prompted in you, then there is possibly a spirit of apathy alive in you that it's really someone else's job to care. And that the Old Testament uses the language that it's the hardening of the heart where this apathy comes from. It's the hardening of a heart where this apathy comes, comes to life. And I'm just telling you, the power of Christ in you has the ability to soften a heart of stone and really birth a spirit of generosity in you. But you've got to confess that to God. You have, to, you have to acknowledge that you don't really care and that it might actually be a problem for you. So you might sit in a place where you don't care and you think it's actually protecting you. You think it actually might be saving you from something. You think it actually might be one of those things that helps you, uh, you know, with the vulnerabilities and things like that. But I'm telling you, if you, if you are not stirred and, and, and care about the things that God cares about, there is no way you are putting love into action. No way at all. You need to confess that to God and you need to ask him to break that spirit in you. Third question. If you're not helping, like if genuinely, if you really aren't helping and helping others, which servant are you? Are you the two that invested everything and gave everything and, 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 and saw multiplication and growth out of it? Or are you the one who did nothing? 
if there are people in need around you and you really don't feel any desire to step out and help, if family and friends have to beg or coerce you to do anything for others, if there's something that needs to be done that you are uniquely qualified and gifted to do, but the first thing you do consistently is come up with the 10 reasons why you can't do it, then I'm telling you there's a spirit of selfishness in your life. And you need to confess that to God and allow him to break that spirit, break the chains of that that hold you back from doing what God has called you to do, what love requires of you to do with all that he's already given and blessed you with. Confess that to him. Wake up every day just asking the question, who can I help today? Learn the vocabulary. This is the tough one. Learn the vocabulary that when someone comes up to you, that your first response is, how can I help? How can I help? Oh, it'll blow your life up, I'm promising you. Just those words. How can I help? Even if there's nothing you can do to help, how can I help? Fourth question. We'll go to the fourth question. If, if you don't use what you've been given, what servant are you, right? If you hold back because you're afraid to fail, if you refuse to cultivate and grow the gifts and talents that you do have because you believe that it will, people will be there to expect more from you and you don't know if you're going to have it and it won't be enough. If you spend your days in worry and anxiety about all the things you can't do and all the things you don't have instead of the things you do have and the things you can do, then the spirit of fear is alive in you. We gave that example a few series ago about who's driving the car, right? Is fear driving the car? When that spirit of fear is alive in you, you will shy back, you will shrink away. You will basically do nothing with what God has given you to do for him and to use for his glory. Here's the, end of the, here's the, here's the deal. I don't want a single person in this room I don't want a single person in this room in terms of hearing this message respond with any type of guilt that I'm trying to guilt you into something. But I want you to understand that the way we understand eternity is, is not some sort of destination, you know, some sort of destination in terms of, well, we're just, we're okay until the master comes back. No, the master is here. The master is present. He is with us. He is our Lord. So every morning and every evening and all the points in between, he is looking at you and he is looking at me and I don't want a single person in here to be motivated by guilt, but I do want you to wrestle with the very difficult work of the fact that right now you may be feeling the conviction that you are a useless servant of God. And I want that to be okay. That that conviction comes not because he wants to push you down, not because he wants to make you feel guilty, but because he wants you to know he has created and given you so much more than that. He has given you, by his Holy Spirit, the ability to have a spirit of generosity to flow out of you. 
And when you are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and to love others as you love yourself and you have never really understood or seen how that works its way in your life, then there is a spirit of something else holding you back. Maybe it's these four things. Maybe it's something different. But it's not what God placed in you. I don't want anybody here to wake up tomorrow to the feeling that you're a useless servant. I want you to leave here today. I want you to do the hard work. I want you to leave here today. And I want you to pray that God would give you a spirit of generosity. You'd wake up every day and you'd say, God, you've given me so much. What can I do today to show others your love? How can I be generous with everything you've given me? to those that are in my top five, to those that are at work, to those that are in my family, to those in my church, to those in my church community. What can you do in me today? Next week, we're going to talk about the, the value, the value of what that does in your life. Because again, we can be busy and we can have no margin and we can have, feel like we're really focused and we feel like we've got many, many plates in the air and we are exhausted every end of every week and at the end of every day, we're just, we're just spent and yet at the same time, we may, do, we may be involved in nothing that actually matters. I love this quote from Winston Churchill, that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life worth living by what we give. We have a life worth living when we really put the feet to the fire, if you will. If we really put, put action and, and motion to what love has done in us and what he wants to do through us because generosity is love in action. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you have really blessed all of us incredibly with all that we need and all that you have called us to lean into and to live into and to live out of. Yet, God, myself and so many in the room, we've let other things hold us back. We've let other things sort of take us down the path of the useless servant. And we've spent our time, we've spent our money, and we've spent our energy into things that just don't matter. God, thank you for maybe your conviction today. Not guilt, but conviction to help break down in us those spirits of fear and apathy and selfishness and greed, to break those away and to give really a rebirth of a heart of generosity that wants to love you and wants to love others the way you've commanded us to do so. God, I'm I pray today that everybody in this room and watching later would take the time to ask that question 10 times a day. What does love require of me today? And that God, you would be, a, you'd be doing a transformative work in our church, breaking down chains, breaking down the spirits of apathy, breaking down those spirits of fear, and moving us by your Holy Spirit into a place where love just doesn't, it's not just something we feel. God, it's something that we do. I thank you. It's only by your power and your grace that we can do any of these things. I pray that we will all do the hard work today that's required of us. In your name, Jesus, amen.